0: My name's Ian McLaughlin and I'm a PhD student in neuroscience at the University of Pennsylvania. And today I'm going to be chatting with Molly Sheehan, a postdoc in bioengineering here at Penn. Um, and she's also running as a congressional candidate for Pennsylvania's 7th district. And so Molly, thank you very much for uh, chatting with me today. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I know you're, you're a postdoc in bioengineering and I believe you're in Brian Chow's lab, is that right?
1: Yeah, that's correct. And thank you for having me here today. Um, yeah, so I'm a postdoc in Brian Chow's lab in bioengineering. We are in optogenetics lab, and I do protein design. And I actually also did my Ph.D. here in the medical school in biochemistry and molecular biophysics in Les Dutton's lab.
0: Right, and I, I think I saw uh, you were the recipient of the Young Investigator Award at the 2016 uh, World Molecular Imaging Congress.
1: Yes, it was a gr- incredible honor to sh- receive that award. They're an amazing international scientific community and have been, uh, independently as people, robust champions for my congressional race also, though obviously not as an organization.
0: <laughs> that's awesome. Um, so you have some you know, serious science cred. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, you were recently interviewed by Jeffrey uh, Kluger. I'm not positive that that's how you pronounce his last name, but uh, you were interviewed uh, for Time Magazine, which included a a video with some strong sciencey sort of B-roll of you doing very sciencey y things. <laughs> um, and uh, and you're also a mother.
1: Yes, I have a three-year-old. Uh, she's amazing. And she's really the reason I'm running for office. Um, I'm not sure I would have taken this risk of my scientific career uh, if I didn't care so much about uh, my child and everyone's children.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. So you are running for Congress. Um, and so are you still doing research in, in Brian's lab like as you're running?
1: Yes. So I'm still a postdoc. Um, I'm actually on a leave right now, a temporary leave for an unrelated reason. But yes, I'm actually even on my leave still doing research in Brian's lab.
0: Wow. Yep. So, so I would imagine that running for office um, can be pretty time intensive. Um, and uh, so, you know, you have a lot of demands on your life. So how, how are you? Are you able to allocate time sort of in, a, in an intentional way or is it just sort of like whatever comes up, you just go do it?
1: So my biggest asset in doing all of this is that I am an incredibly organized person and I've always, I wouldn't say I overschedule my life, but and actually I don't remember things unless they're on the calendar. But so it just <laughs> makes me keep a very tight calendar. Um, But the reason I can do it, and one of the reasons I'm running, is that I have an incredible amount of support at home. So we live with my husband's parents, Mm -hmm. and my dad is also retired, and we have one amazing, healthy three-year-old. And so our parent-to-child ratio is about five to one. (laughs) So... Uh, Actually, when I got into this, and my husband was the first person saying, you should run. Uh, And we sat down with his parents, and we talked to my dad. And basically, my family offloaded all of my domestic labor so that I could still have quality time with my child. But, I mean, I just don't really do her laundry anymore. And I don't make dinner very much, even though I love cooking. And I really offloaded a huge amount of work that I was doing and work that I loved. Mm. But... um, I would say that's the thing that's given the most in my life is taking care of my home.
0: Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, because, you know, that's immediately what jumps out to me. And like, I'm terrible with time management, but I know how little time I have just as a graduate student. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, I'm curious if you feel that somebody in, you know, another postdoc who maybe doesn't have the the kind of support that that you might have. Do you think it would be possible for them to to run
1: if they have kids? I mean, probably not. And I mean, my understanding of my reality being special is part of why I'm running, that Mm. there aren't very many young working moms who have the setup I have. And it's one of the reasons we're so underrepresented in all forms of elected office. And it's, I mean, I frankly have the privilege of running because I have all the support and that even though I might miss my daughter some nights, like tonight Mm. I have three events. But- I know she's home with people that genuinely want to be there, loving her and taking care of her, and that I also have the privilege of my husband being our breadwinner, and so I can take leaves if I need to. And so probably not. I mean, I think that life is really hard for working parents without running for office, and I'm just incredibly fortunate to have so many amazing grandparents in my life.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, Yeah. that's that's an important point, I think. And so in the past, uh, the Penn Science Policy and Diplomacy Group um, have had some events with an organization called 314 Action. And so for anybody that's not familiar, that's an organization, it's a nonprofit that's devoted to getting more scientists elected to, um, to office. And so have you been working with 314 Action?
1: So they helped launch my campaign, and they were incredibly helpful in my launch. They're the reason I got that Time Magazine documentary, mm-hmm. little mini documentary, Um, They hooked me up with that connection. I got, when I first launched, I also was in Forbes magazine and some other media contacts that they had. And so they were incredibly helpful in terms of media for my launch. And I went to a training in D.C. that they had that connected me with other women running for office, uh, like Jess Phoenix out in uh, California, who's a volcanologist running for the California 25th, and Elaine DeMassey, who's uh, actually a beamline engineer, who just Mm -hmm. left her job to run for New York first. And so they—I they, mean—they have definitely helped me into a community. I'm not sure if they'll endorse my campaign. They have—I'm running a grassroots campaign, and I'm really committed to economic progressivism. And that doesn't always align with their vision for their pack. But I'm really grateful for the resources they've given me so far, regardless of whether I end up with their official endorsement.
0: Gotcha. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. And so kind of like a, as you brought up, uh, this past year, or I guess a little bit over a year, has been pretty unprecedented with a really large number of scientists running for office, an unusually large number. And I've read that there are currently only five scientists in the House and Senate, um, and I don't know if that number includes physicians and, and engineers, um, but that's the number that's thrown around, and it's you know a pretty small number uh, regardless. Um, and I think that 314 and action noted that they've seen over four thousand scientists who've expressed uh, interest in running so far. And so, you're you're you know you brought up some of the other um, candidates, and so is there any kind of networking between? Uh, these these candidates, um, like I know, some are running for House and Senate seats in California and Texas and Maryland, and kind of all over the place. And I think there's even another scientist candidate for Pennsylvania's sixth. And so I, I wonder if if, you know, if you do network, do similar types of issues come up um, given your unique backgrounds?
1: Yes, definitely. So I know a lot of the scientists that are running for congressional seats right now, Chrissy Houlihan is the one in the sixth. Uh, I would say that, They define scientists rather broadly, which is good because there aren't very many of us that are running. Um, And there's only one PhD scientist in the house, Bill Foster from Illinois. So I do network with them. I've become especially uh, pretty close with Elaine Demassey in New York. and I also know, and so Jess, Elaine, and I all did our, when we went to 314's training, we did our interviews together with uh, League of Conservation Voters and Emily's list. And so we got to hang out more. And there was a big snowstorm, so most people didn't come. So I kind of got to know them. But oh, there's also Julia Biggins out in Virginia that I met that weekend. Um, I would say for me versus candidates like Chrissy, Chrissy uh, runs a, she was a COO of a major corporation. And so someone like her, someone like Hans Kersted, who's also running California, who's, you know, this, stem cell CEO. Right. I believe
0: he's running against uh, Dana Rohrabacher. He
1: is. And so he and Chrissy are amazing candidates, but I would say that they face really different challenges than I do as an academic scientist, because Mm -hmm. when people get into running for office, uh, this term gets thrown around and said, what's your Rolodex look like? And Mm -hmm. it basically means how much money can you extract from your own personal connections? And Chrissy and Hans were really well-positioned to extract a ton of money out of their (laughs) connections, and that's great for them. But for someone like me or someone like Elaine, academic scientists don't make that much money, and they're not traditional donors, and we don't necessarily think about that as part of, you know, the lawyers even who might make the same amount of money think about political donations as part of their political capital and part of their job and money they spend, and scientists don't think of that. And so I've I have connected with Elaine and also some other people who have gotten in and out, actually, and now we're doing activism instead of running, about the hardships of fundraising as an academic scientist, particularly as a young one who, you know, most of my friends are postdocs and we're not exactly bankrolled.
0: <laughs> right. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Rolling in, in that money, that postdoc money, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, cool. Yeah. So, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. There, there's definitely a diversity of candidates, um, even just among the science candidates. Um, and so I've seen, at least online, I've seen you've done some talks to constituents or uh, potential constituents. Um, and I, I think the Time Magazine article had some footage of you at Haverford, which I believe that's where you went to college, right? Yeah,
1: that's my alma mater. Yep. Right.
0: Um, so have you had the opportunity to do many talks like that and interact with potential constituents?
1: Yes, I do it all the time. So and tonight I have two, two or three, depending on how many we can meet before they end, Um <laughs> Yeah, we meet a ton of people. I've also had lots of meet and greets and fundraisers and luckily a lot of them I can bring my kid to. I've also gotten to speak at a lot of state reps launch parties and state Senate launch parties uh, so for all these a lot of really amazing women and men running for state House throughout Pennsylvania and been supportive of them but yeah I mean we're out all the time meeting people that's really the backbone of a grassroots campaign and we were also out all through 2017 working for municipal candidates which is so important if any of you guys could just give like a weekend sometimes to go canvas sometimes the municipal candidates those elections are decided by like 10 or 20 voice 20 uh, 10 or 20 votes and you going out for a a couple hours could make or break, you know, someone's school board.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, gotcha. I mean, wow, your your daughter's getting involved in politics, electoral politics pretty early, huh? She
1: is my best literature dispenser because <laughs> no one says no to an like, adorable three year old saying, like, right. "Vote for my mommy." <laughs> Cute. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, and so, do you find um, at these events, do you find that similar issues are brought up by by uh, uh, voters?
1: Yeah. So so our map is getting redrawn and. So, I don't know what the new map will look like, but I've been out in the current map, which is highly gerrym. I mean, some people call it the worst gerrymandered district in the country. And I
0: believe that the 7th District is sort of like the poster child of gerrymandering.
1: Yeah, it is. It's because it's kind of circular and it's bizarre tendrils, and so they can actually put it on a poster. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Tendrils. It is a bizarre map. but So, I would say regionally the same things come up, but... Lancaster rural Lancaster and farmland no I don't hear the same things Mm. as in Clifton Heights which is just outside the city um the, you know they're just incredibly diverse regions that have completely different economies. But I would say the common thread is that most people are worried about their home economy. They hmm. want to know they're going to have a good, stable job. They want to know they're going to have health insurance. They want to know they're going to be able to take leave if a family member gets sick. I mean, most people have really... It's just what that means in terms of policy. If you're a farmer versus you know a union electrician, th- your policies are completely different that you're asking about.
0: It sounds yeah, c- yeah. Um, kind of challenging, almost, that you have to...
1: It is challenging, and I think for representing a district that looks like that a lot of times they probably have even if you're you're you know fully working for your constituents and not for your donors sometimes they have competing needs uh, maybe even in the same bill and it is a really big challenge uh, more so than if it's a more compact district which we will be getting hopefully by Monday uh, a more compact district yeah i
0: think i think governor wolf has until thursday i, I believe to either accept the newly partisan <laughs> gerrymandered uh, map that was drawn by the gop so he actually
1: just rejected oh, the gop that- map which was Arguably also, worse than yeah. the current map. It, it's aesthetically more pleasing, uh, <laughs> just Yeah, just gerrymandered. It, it
0: kind of looks as though like they put the gerrymandered map through like Photoshop smooth filter. It is
1: exactly what they did, except not only did they smooth it, but they first adjusted a couple lines to make sure they could pack as many Democratic candidates into the same districts and abandon others so there's no candidates in them, and put as many incumbents together as possible. So yeah, it was pretty... Yeah, and then there was no way Wolf was going to approve it, and he rejected it. Yeah.
0: yeah, it's it's been really interesting to to watch um, how how this is unfolded, and I mean, I would imagine it would probably have some pretty significant implications for both your campaign. I mean, the primary is coming up pretty soon, but both the campaign as well as whomever is elected, I mean, the the district could be completely different from the one in which they they campaigned.
1: Right. And I think one of the biggest changes we're going to see is that it's going to become more Democratic in the 7th. The 7th is probably because it is so gerrymandered, it's going to take the biggest swing. Right now it's R plus 1, which means there's 1 percent more Republicans than Democrats. And it's about to swing to probably like a D plus 4 or 5, which people consider a solidly blue district, especially in a wave year. I mean, you don't see it's probably not going to be super competitive uh, for the Republicans, which means that the primary is really incredibly important, which is why we've seen this flood of new candidates uh, jumping in at the last minute, because uh, me, the incumbent has been taken out uh, by a sexual harassment scandal and we're going to get redrawn. And so people people are piling in with the opportunity.
0: Makes yeah. sense. Yeah. And just, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, I'll repeat this at the end, but the primary is on May 15th. Yes, May right? 15th. Um, okay. So a question that was brought up by somebody, We you know, we asked for some questions from, from listeners. And one was... Um, are there issues that are specific to the 7th district that you've been able to address? Or do you feel, and we kind of talked about this a little bit, but do you feel that many of the same issues that are brought up by you know people that you speak to are common to the rest of the country even, or maybe neighboring districts?
1: Well, I think both of those things are true. Yeah. Most people are not single issue voters. Most people have you know, an array of things they care about. And I would say the biggest common thread throughout whatever the district looks like, and this is just it's just generally true for the whole country is that health care is a huge issue and the sort of legislation Republicans have been proposing right now to dismantle health care reforms that we've put through, people are really scared about. And as someone running to talk about, how are drugs made? How are technologies made? Why is our medicine so expensive and inefficient to begin with? And can we rein that in on a path to single payer, but in a way that first reduces healthcare costs and improves efficiency and improves the quality of care of the system? That's something that resonates with everybody. Everyone has some problem with their healthcare system. And a lot of the things I'm proposing, like homogenizing electronic medical records, rethinking how we patent drugs, especially from academia. Those are things people want to talk about everywhere. And it's frankly nonpartisan. A lot of Republicans want to talk about it too. And they also, they especially want to talk about efficiencies and you know, how we can improve the way our government tax dollars are spent. Um, in terms of what affects this district specifically, and something I think being a scientist has helped me a lot with, is that there is a pipeline being run through the district. And that's going to be true regardless of how they draw it, because it runs all the way from the Marcellus Shale in western Pennsylvania to Marcus Hook, down here and it is just a colossal failure at every single level of government that this has been allowed to the construction of this has been allowed to proceed without having any public safety assessments and actually one of the things one of the pipeline activists uh said to me when we met to speak about it the first time was how much of a relief it was that he didn't have to go through the chemistry and why the materials they're going to be putting through this line are so dangerous. And what the blast rate is that he could just show me the data (laughs) and we could move on with the policy part of it. And then a lot of times when he talks to other people, he spends hours trying to explain why there's a difference between natural gas and natural gas liquids and why they're more volatile and why they explode with a bigger blast. And, you Mm -hmm. know, we didn't have to do any of that, really. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it is a relief to allow these people to be able to come and talk to somebody who understands the physical reality of the safety risk they're facing. And I've been a, an advocate for stopping the construction of the pipeline until they can, these people can get an independent risk assessment, which is, frankly, such a low ask. Uh, and the <laughs> thing they're really fighting for, they're not even, they actually resent being called environmental activists. They say they're public safety activists. And the thing that they want, because all of this is actually getting shipped to Scotland to make plastic, it's not even for our energy needs, is they just want a plastic plant in Pittsburgh so it doesn't have to go across the whole state. And so their ask is actually good for Pennsylvania, and they're not try- even trying to destroy the project completely. They hmm. just want, their homes to be safe it's like such a (laughs) something the government should be able to provide for them right
0: is this dangerous to my life
1: (laughs) yeah and people have refused to even ask that question
0: interesting yeah um yeah and so given that you do have this background in science do you find that voters perceive you differently or is it just sort of like you're just another candidate
1: it really depends on where i am so the realities of a primary is that it's a lot of party people Mm -hmm. and I would say it's mixed some people really want um a non-traditional candidate they want someone that isn't you know a corporate lawyer which is what most candidates are um or lawyers in general but then i mean a lot of party people are lawyers and a lot of them think you need to be a lawyer and i wouldn't say i've felt a ton of resistance about that but some of them i would say are less excited about a scientist running compared to the general electorate mm. um and that i You know, like on social media, I get a huge amount of interest compared to everyone else in the race because the actual voting electorate wants somebody who does something that isn't just, you know, how do I, you know, fix loopholes and fix loopholes or exploit loopholes. (laughs) I mean, the reality is, as a scientist, we can hire lawyers to answer those questions with us. And the lawyers have not, even though they could theoretically hire some scientists to help them, they have not been doing it. There is like a... Our government is almost like allergic to science at this point. And so I would say the electorate really likes that I'm a scientist and the party is sort of mixed on it. Some people really like it and some people are just kind of lukewarm to it.
0: Interesting. huh? And so um, I I did a little bit of homework on you. And so before I I believe before you started to run, you um, started a tech platform. I did, yeah. Right? Uh, that was devoted to helping constituents interact with their legislators. And, um, I mean, would, would you mind talking about that a little bit? So
1: nothing's out yet, but that was the first thing I did, was I started a tech company, although it's all going to be um, free to candidates. And the thing that's... I started a couple projects, and the one that's taking off and that we're developing fully is a platform that's kind of like Match.com for volunteers with campaigns.
0: Oh, I love that.
1: Yeah, so the idea is you could make a... Profile and maybe you're because you've made written lots of papers really good at graphic design. Mm-hmm. You know you're an Illustrator Pro now or a Photoshop Pro, and so you can put on there. I can do graphic design or whatever else your skills are. I can write you policy on science. I can you know you can put whatever you want into and there will be ch- you know check boxes, and then you could also put your you know some one to 10 scale political ideology. And then you could search by location and by political ideology to find campaigns that match you. And it might be someone you wasn't even on your radar that maybe is running for school board 10 miles away, but is someone super cool that resonates with you. And maybe you want to make their logo. Maybe you want to make their website and that you guys can match with each other. And we'd set it up so that campaigns can't just spam volunteers. And it's really volunteer focused so that, you know, tech people want to be on. And we can really, you know, use the bench of our country that isn't just donors, but the actual make people's campaigns and have people be invested in campaigns because they contributed to it. Um, someone who contributes to a campaign is going to be such a bigger advocate for it. And I think both Trump and Bernie really capitalized on this in 2016. And it's something that is nonpartisan. Everyone wants to take ownership of, of their leaders and really feel like they have a line and they've contributed to it. Um, and so hopefully it will be launching for 2019 municipal candidates. I really want to launch it for local races because I think they're the ones that would have the biggest benefit from... Getting all of this volunteering into them.
0: Very cool. And so, do, do you have a name for the platform yet? Or? So it's
1: going to be at thepeople.online. So we are the people online.
0: Oh, cool. Yeah, <laughs> it's a perfect name. Oh, I, I love that idea. Uh, so hopefully, uh, we'll be able to. We'll know when it when it goes live. I'll let the, you
1: guys know. Maybe we can come back and.
0: Yeah, that would be great. It. Yeah, um, we'll buy an ad on your
1: program. Or something <laughs>
0: <for them. laughs> we're we're pretty cheap. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so do you have any just sort of broad suggestions? You know, a, a, apart from. Using your platform potentially in the future for grad students or postdocs or or medical students or college students who just want to get more politically engaged. They don't really know what to do beyond just a vote in a primary or vote in an election. Do you have any suggestions?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, campaigns need volunteers. If there's someone that resonates with you, help. You can... um Like, Adrienne has been helping us with policy. It's been incredibly helpful. You guys are amazing policy researchers in a way that it is really hard to find, even on topics that someone will say, we've had a few PhD students say, well, I don't really know anything about this, but, you know, in an after... You guys, your skill set is synthesizing information and you have access to journals. And so, you know, I still get a sheet back from them two days later that is better research than, like, any policy team I could have paid to do research for me. Uh, Most of campaigning is really mundane and not that complicated, uh, and anyone can do it, which, I mean, maybe doesn't make you feel used, but it's super useful. A lot of it's like data entry and uh, finding information online and Googling things, and it's just an overwhelming amount of data synthesizing. but also share things on social media, volunteer, Canvas, phone bank, donate. Get your parents, if they have more money than you, to donate to somebody you care about. Um, even small donations really matter because people know that the number of donations you have is just as important as mm-hmm. the money. A lot of it is about showing strength, not just about buying things, um, even though we do need to buy things.
0: Also. So, so I mean, in terms of, like, the like practical mechanics of that, I mean, would you just recommend that, you know, a grad student find a, a candidate that they like and then just, like, Literally email them, or or h- yeah, how would almost, they volunteer?
1: So almost every campaign has some contact us on their website. Frankly, if they don't, you probably shouldn't volunteer for them. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's a bad sign, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're
1: probably just running on money and aren't really looking to, for volunteers or to running people's campaigns. But if, yeah, find someone that resonates with you. It could be maybe where you're from. Um, we have this problem where a lot of our intellectuals and you know that they call the talent of the left or on you know the right, but like young, forward-thinking people. Concentrate in cities, and then the school board in Ohio, where maybe the city you know you're from, doesn't have any help. But maybe you could help them, and you still know the demographics of that area. And so I would say, don't just look where you I mean look where you live now, and look at local races also. But also look where you're from, and you know try, kind of try to redistribute our talent back to the rest of the country after we concentrate here.
0: Gotcha. Okay, and so as we said, uh, the primaries are on May 15th for both parties, yep. and then the election, of course, is November 6th. Um, So best of luck Molly, thank you so much for sitting down and chatting with me.
1: Thanks for having me, it was a pleasure.